Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Spoil Me, covering Elder Empire, Sea Book 3, the final sea book, chapters 1 and 2, and the prologue. In these chapters, we find out that Petal actually knew Jirene was up to some shit. And I don't blame Petal, because Jirene is really convincing and knows exactly the argument to make to a person like Petal. Welcome to Spoil Me. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. Thank you very much to Asher for commissioning this episode. Okay, so we're getting into this final book, and it is really, like, disorienting, actually, this time around to back up the way that we are. Previously, where we left off with everybody felt so definitive that when we pick back up in the second book, I was pretty much feeling right on it. Like, it just seemed a very natural movement. This book, starting off the way that it does, I'm not going to use the word jarring because that implies that it was not well done. It just kind of felt like, okay, all right, this isn't going to be exactly what I'm expecting. And that's not an inherently bad thing. It's just different, you know? So it starts off, as it often does, with a prologue in the POV of somebody who is not one of our mains. This guy's name is Carson. And he is really not a fan of this puppet emperor. He calls him puppet emperor, false emperor, liar emperor, 
anything that you can think of that is a synonym for dishonest and fake, he uses. And there's an italicized voice in his head. And obviously, this is not his own thought pattern. It's something that's influencing him. Tell me why I didn't realize that it was like the fragment of an elder. I think it's because I am still not really certain what elders can do. I know that Urgnau is like, you know, out here f causing people to uh, disappear. That's Urgnau, right? And it's Akmagut. Or maybe, is this fragment Akmagut? I think it's Urgnaut though. I just didn't realize that this was something he could do. And I'm still sort of on the fence as to how I feel about the fact that we're, we're throwing out new aspects of power that these great elders are capable of at this point in the game. I, I'm not entirely against it. But it does throw me off balance a little bit. And this is something that I, uh, this is not the only series that I have this issue with, but it feels like it's come up enough now that I just really want to address it overall. I can't be adequately impressed by a power, ability, a show of strength of like a particular kind. If I don't understand the limitations of what they are supposed to be capable of versus what they are apparently capable of. And, you know, there are going to be times where maybe they didn't want me to necessarily be impressed and that wasn't the goal, but it can feel like if you don't draw yourself parameters as an author, then you're leaving yourself enough room to kind of do whatever you want. And to a point that's your right. And you can do that. And that's fine. But it can come across as leaving yourself so much free space that you can pull whatever you want out whenever you feel like it as a sort of get out of jail free card. I'm not saying that's what's happening here. Because this doesn't wind up being as crucial to things as I had thought it might, or at least it doesn't seem to be right now. It may later. I know that we know that the elders can kind of take people in thrall, but I didn't realize that it would, it could happen like this to sort of groups in this way. I thought that that was reserved more for like the, uh, elder worshippers who were actively seeking this out. And mostly, I just wanted to touch on that because this is something that um, I extend a lot of leeway to writers who have managed to get me on their side in the past and like prove to me that they aren't going to sort of pull this thing repeatedly and, and be cheap with it. And so I have given Will a lot of leeway. But I'm going to have my eye on it for the remainder of this book since it's the last one. I think some of the leeway came from thinking maybe things would be outlined a little bit more decisively. 
at some point. And it hasn't really. It's sort of, it, it, a lot of it depends on the abilities of the individual, if we're talking about readers. Um, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be like incredibly delineated, but I do find it helpful to have something to hold on to, to ground me. Because otherwise, like I said, it can just feel like Doctor Who, where all of a sudden he just pulls out a little device that happens to be able to teleport you that you didn't know existed until literally two minutes earlier. And it's just kind of, oh, okay, well, we just have a way to get out of the, okay, sure. Um, again, not saying that's what's happening here. I just wanted to sh share my feelings on this. So anyway, this voice is telling him he stole them from you. It's his fault. They're dead. Five years ago, when Carson was little more than a child, his parents and older sister had been killed in the riots following the emperor's death. The wound had never closed. It had only festered. And here, the imperialists were trying to raise an imitation, a fake emperor, to pretend everything was all right. His eyes flicked up to the black crack in the sky, the badge that unified every one of the 21 patriots who prepared to die here this morning. And this killed me a little bit, them being called patriots. This is not something that I see in like a fantasy context often, that word. But it is so loaded these days. And I immediately had like a bit of a chill at the choice of words. Um, the false emperor would deliver them all to the great elders unless Carson stopped him. And... They have all of these like things prepared, um, you know, different charges and stuff that's like alchemically produced. And they have s different stuff to confuse the scent of beings that are like watching for interference from others. Um, an open jar to Carson's left bubbled and hissed strangely. The sounds seemed to dip in and out of audibility, as though they made noises that his human ears couldn't pick up. They had four such devices scattered around, and the bat-eared woman pressed a hand to her head, but continued walking. The bat-eared woman. I really want to know what that looks like, because bat ears are very, very tiny. So I'm assuming that they're like human-sized bat ears. Does that make sense? But I'll, I, I still, that sounded so funny to me. Um, in a more populated place or time, the false emperor's guards would have been larger or more thorough, but this was supposed to be a secret trip, a quick one, through an all but abandoned neighborhood at a silent time of day. If one of Carson's fellows hadn't been a member of the Imperial Guard herself, they would have never caught the Liar King so unprepared. So this armored horse comes around the corner and Carson has a moment of just like, why are you going to try and disguise your carriage when you've got all of these Imperial guards around? You, you have to realize that we are going to know who you are. And again, this voice chimes in, he doesn't deserve to wear the crown. 
In some of Carson's daydreams, he and the other patriots captured the fake emperor alive. Then they visited on him all the torments that they and their loved ones had suffered since the true emperor had been taken from them. He clutched his hate tighter than his musket. That line is a little bit too much. And I mean that in a good way. Oh, oh boy. Um, Carson was privileged enough to, to die last. He would get to see the corpse of the puppet king. So things begin to happen. Shots are fired. Some fuses go off. The carriage lands on its side. Its wheels are shattered. It looks like the horses and the coachman are all dead. Um, and the Imperial Guard are all okay. They, none of them have died. And they're looking pretty pissed. Um, when the doors to the carriage opened and a woman in polished black and red armor stepped out, Carson knew their bait had been taken. General Teach had served the true emperor, and not one of Carson's patriots could uh, not one of Carson's patriots could fully explain why she had transferred her loyalty to a lesser copy. And he thinks that she's just kind of an idiot, and that maybe she's more animal than person. But when he looks at her in the eye, he has this moment of like, oh man, I don't know though. She doesn't look like an idiot. Um, and. Teach raised her fist in a sign. Ten of Carson's companions burst from hiding. General Teach couldn't unleash Tearfang unless she wanted to kill all her guard and her precious false emperor at the same time. All of the patriots had exposed themselves against her except one. And he runs out, gets up to the carriage, he only needed a second, hurling the pair of vials beneath the carriage. The glass shattered, spilling a pair of liquids on the streets. And the carriage goes up in flames. And he acknowledges, like, this is the most powerful incendiary that we can make. That is not to say it's the most powerful incendiary. We were working with what we had and people with limited knowledge. And he's really feeling himself. Like, this shit looks like it worked exactly. And... The second a figure began to emerge, Carson squeezed the trigger. The musket ball bounced off Calder Martin's helmet. The musket ball had done nothing. So Carson pulls a sword. And he's, the false emperor signals a guard. The voice in Carson's head is telling him, you have him. Calder Martin sliced Carson's sword in half. And he throws himself at Calder, just trying to, like, rip his armor off by hand. And they have him, like, gri gripped up, and Calder says, don't hurt him. And Carson is just kind of like, why is he trying to keep me alive? Like, what is the point of this? He's not seeing any mercy in this, or generosity, or anything. It's just like, what else is this is this fucker up to? It's all wrapped in suspicion and, and mistrust. Um, so at this point, there's this interesting moment where Martin drove his orange spotted blade into the cobblestones. 
The shadow on the street writhed like a pierced snake. Darkness spewed into the air like blood, and the shade hissed and screamed, sounds echoing in Carson's mind in a voice that sounded like his own. He lost his grip, falling to the floor, that scream all he could hear. The heart of the shadow burned red where it was pierced by Martin's sword, and in an instant the darkness curled up and burned away like a dry leaf in a flame. Suddenly, there was a hollow emptiness inside Carson, like a piece of his mind had gone missing. And Calder says, a spawn of Urgnaut burrowed itself into your thoughts. This wasn't you. Carson spits in his face. I was sort of hoping that he had just broken the spell. And Carson would sit up and be like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. What happened? I, I, I was totally not in control of myself. It is not that simple. And a part of me is glad for that. But also, I, I really do wish it was that simple. And he says, have the survivors taken to the nearest prison. And somebody mentions that Candle Bay is the nearest one. And obviously, for very personal reasons, Calder isn't stoked about that. But they don't really have much choice at this point. Carson screamed at him as he was taken away, swearing vengeance, waiting for the voice of his hatred to reignite his rage. He heard only the groans of the dying. And I thought that was a really interesting way for this to go, is not that he was being entirely driven by this other being who was forcing him to do things he wouldn't do. It was a being that was feeding into a feeling and desire that he already had, which I always think is going to be more effective. And that's part of what makes it so much scarier. Like, if you are being forced to act against your own nature, it's easy to sort of come out of it and be able to point very decisively to these particular actions, things that you committed and be like, Obviously, I would never do that. But when somebody is just influencing you to do something that is in line with your what apparently is your morality and your value system and your like overall goals or they're stoking particular fears that you genuinely have or grief in this case that you genuinely have, that's a lot harder to fight. And that's what the most clever of, uh, I don't know if I want to say like insiders, but I, I feel like that's the right word. What they do is they take actual injustices and genuine like, um, sometimes genuine causes or at least resentments that they know exist and they give false reasons for them. They provide you with either a particular scapegoat or a false goal that will result in you being free of whatever it is that you're feeling. And when you're really smart and know how to play people, you get very good at telling what's going to work on who. There is another series that I'm covering called Dandelion Dynasty by Ken Leo, which is really good and I highly recommend it. And there is a character in that who is excellent at just sort of like 
gently directing people towards their own worst impulses to get them to do certain things that are a little bit outside of their actual character, but fueled by the same shit they've always been motivated by. And it's really fascinating to watch, but you also hate it because it's so effective. And these people don't realize they're being played. And I just, I don't know. There's just something about this that the fact that he doesn't come out of it right away was like upsetting because I understand it, you know? So chapter one begins with an excerpt from a fragment of pottery recovered by the black watch from an elder cult known as the thousand eyes. He who sees has spoken. The rebel will blind. He who sees this is seen. So it must be. The killer will spill the blood of the rebel. This is seen, so it must be. The king will rise from the ashes of the killer. This is seen, so it must be. What is seen must come to pass before the eye of the future is blinded. Praise be to he who sees. So I'm thinking the rebel is Calder. That he will blind he who sees. I'm not sure how that works. I mean, I guess the rebel is the emperor because it says the killer will spill the blood of the rebel. So maybe that's the emperor. The king will rise from the ashes of the killer and the king is probably Calder. But then, of course, the killer is supposed to have been dead and Shira is not, which is part of the, the wrench and everything. So... Calder is watching his own coronation from the outskirts because obviously they are not really using him. They are using a body double. And he is sort of thinking that he could have at least been in the audience out there. And Bliss is like, mm, you really couldn't have because you would have been a target. They could have just blown everybody up without even like checking to see which one was you and gotten you. So no, we're not putting you down there. Um, and <laughs> she's talking about the Alchemist Guild and says, uh, did you know they have a solution that will turn you inside out? It's expensive and impossible to make in large batches, but I'm sure a single thrown canister is possible for the head of the Alchemist Guild to produce. And I have run into other fiction where people are turned inside out and I do not care for it. So I'm glad to only be hearing about this and I hope to never actually see it because it just sounds like the worst fucking thing. Um, and I love when he starts to interrupt and she says, if you would like to interrupt me, please submit the proper paperwork to my assistant and I will have her consider your request, which is a very good line. I love it so much. Um, and they're, when they're watching this whole thing, Calder says that this dude smiles too much, his body double, like that he's not convincing as Calder due to this. And Bliss says, well, you actually do smile a lot and people don't tend to like it. It's sort of interesting because the point of a smile is allegedly to put other people at ease and make them feel reassured. And your smile doesn't do that. Is that really like a common thing and she pulls out a notebook and she's taking notes i love bliss and her like trying to understand the way that people work and just 
her sort of disconnection with human emotion and how genuinely she, she seems to be trying to get it and like internalize it. And it's unclear for me if it's just her wanting to be able to interact with other people more effectively, if it's her trying to sort of like find parts of herself that might be more human and like reconnect with them. Because again, who Bliss is and the way she has come to be are still mysteries. We know that it has something to do with uh, Barius, but otherwise not much. And so I'm not sure if she's like wanting to kind of undo what he's done to her or if that's a foregone conclusion and she's just going to try and do her best with people in general. Um but yeah, it says over the years he had grown to like Bliss, but that didn't mean he was comfortable being in a room alone with her for an extended period. At any point, she might decide he would benefit from some bizarre and disturbing hallucinations, which, uh, yeah, she does have that tendency. So at this point, Cheska Bennett comes in, followed by Baldazar Kern. And we have a scene here that is so frustrating because Calder knows he knows he's just a figurehead to all these people he's aware that he is not taken seriously but he's still putting all of his hopes on the fact that he can fake it until he makes it he really seems to believe that even if people aren't taking him seriously now, that if he manages to prove himself enough times or at least effectively enough one time, that they will start to really believe that he can be trusted to make his own choices and give orders and not be second guessed by everybody who is supposedly working for him, but basically are the ones actually giving the orders. And yet, even though this is like what he's attempting, he clearly doesn't believe it of himself really either. So first we find out that Kern's got a daughter. Uh, he has more than one because he says, this is my youngest and she's clinging to his leg. She's four years old. Um, and it's pretty adorable. I just never considered that champions could even have children because I assumed that all the like weird shit that's been done to them would have precluded that. Evidently, I was wrong. And Calder is like asking her if she likes candy and they're, he's trying to like, you know, set her at ease. And I love this at one point, this little girl, she comes back up grabs his leg and hugs it and then she goes off with this like grandmotherly woman and Kern says kids you know how they can be I love this moment Calder looked around the room Cheska looked embarrassed Teach mournful and Bliss was openly shaking her head he and Jerry had never wanted children and none of the other three had ever married we've met more we've spent more time with elder spawn than human children they have more in common than you'd think. I really did like that moment. Um, 
Teach being mournful implies that maybe she would have liked to have children. Cheska looking embarrassed is interesting because embarrassment is usually due to a feeling like you should feel a certain way and you don't, or you just don't have the experience you think that you should. Um, and Bliss just shaking her head. Of course, Bliss is going to be straightforward about like, no, I don't know what children are like. What are they like? She would sit down with her journal and take notes on this all day long. Um, as somebody who doesn't want children, I have never really felt shamed for it because I haven't interacted with many people who have gotten in my face about it. But I, and I say that in like an in-person way, there's plenty of people all over the interwebs who try and shame women who don't have children, but that's never really hit for me. I've always known that it's out there and just think it's such a stupid place to be that it doesn't like sink in at all. But the thing that I do get is people who just don't really believe I mean it. And who think that like, especially in the past that I would change my mind eventually. And I'm 38 on Saturday. So I'm going to guess that shit's not happening for me. Like if it hasn't kicked in that I just want kids, I don't think it's going to. Um, but anyway, so they're talking about this news sheet. Regions back down. Empire to be unified. It was the talk of the empire. Since the battle of the Grey Island, the regents had made several statements indicating they would be willing to entertain negotiations. And this is the conversation that basically results in Calder being like, holy shit, they just don't want to hear me about any of this. So, yeah, this, uh, okay. I'm trying to figure out exactly what needs to be quoted directly and what doesn't. Bliss is talking about how she really just wants to take Nathaniel Barrios down. And she realizes that's not exactly their objective and that she's being sort of swayed by that. And she's extremely open about the fact that it biases, it biases her in some ways. So she's just wanting to sort of like put her opinion out there, but, telling everybody to take her with a grain of salt, which I just love because it's so clear. I just appreciate the clarity, man. I really do. Um, so Calder says, have we made any progress on the crack in the sky? And they don't answer. And he says, well, then we need the regions. And Teach says, we can't trust them. And Kern says, we can't trust the regents. If Esther Six isn't loyal to the Empire and the human race, no one is. And she replies, how can you call splitting up the Empire loyalty? What is this splitting up the Empire? Like, is it about the regions just having like regions to the east and regions of the west? I mean, they can't all be everywhere at once. Doesn't that seem like just the fucking practical way to handle things? I wasn't aware that them having their little territories was considered a problem or divisive. It just seems like an efficient way to handle still dealing with like living kind of great elders. Um, and then Teach says, I know the consultant's new guild head and we may as well grab a snake by the tail and squeeze her for benefits. And this is when she shares that 
it's Shara. And I find it really interesting how much Teach still holds it against Shara, what she did with the Emperor. I understand it because, like she says, it wasn't even four hours later after this big heart-to-heart conversation where she even infuses Shara's blade and tries to sort of make it like, I'm not against you. I just personally care about this guy. But I really wish that they had had another conversation about what happened and the reasoning behind Shara doing what she did. The thing is, I am aware that when I say I would have liked for them to have another conversation, Shara isn't going to explain her position effectively. Shara isn't good at justifying herself. She feels like her motives are self-evident. And if you don't agree, that's just you burying your head in the sand. She is so certain that she's making the right call most of the time that having a discussion about your emotional response to what she did is not going to really produce any kind of result. So while I say I wish that they had talked, I know it won't really change anything. It's just my instinct to like try and get people to communicate. Um, so let's see. Asher says, oh, got caught up in playing video games. Um, splitting up the whole empire and them not wanting to do it is why they picked a new emperor to try and prevent it from happening. Right. But they're like, they're not actually splitting it they're just taking different territories aren't they like what effectively changes by them dividing it into north south east and west it's not even like they name the territories out after themselves or have totally different governments in each of them do they they just oversee them is the impression that i got And I understand maybe that's not the ideal, but it doesn't really seem like it's a particular goal of theirs to divide it up. It's just the smart thing to do. And you can still like have a unifying head of those four territories. It's just that they are going to be the people in charge of them for the sake of keeping everybody safe because the elders are still such a threat. Um, Asher says they consider it the end of the empire that everything won't be completely united. I guess. I just don't really see it because they are all so loyal. I'm in the same position as Kern where it's like they just don't have individually speaking the same kind of power that the emperor had because they are not bound to a fucking heart of Nakothi. So they can't handle the empire altogether but that does not mean that they're like jostling for power or hungry for power it just feels to me like they're doing the thing that's the smartest to keep the threats down and if you were able to present a a real option for the emperor i think they would consider it it's just that they don't have one you know um, so Calder asks if Shara would consider a treaty at all. And Teach said she will consider it, but she doesn't keep her word. We will need to force her to hold to the treaty or we can never trust the consultants as long as she is their head. 
and again, Teach saying she doesn't keep her word. Shara didn't make any promises to you, Teach. In fact, she kind of went out of her way to tell you she was going to do what she needed to do. And she would take it into consideration that, she, that you want a certain thing, but she never promised she would do things the way you want. So I think you just really need to like kind of look at what your expectations were versus what she actually said to you and be a little bit more honest about that. You're lying to yourself and trying to behave as if she isn't in, an internally consistent person or untrustworthy when in fact you just kind of heard what you wanted to hear and then got mad that it didn't work out the way you had imagined in your head, which you just made up. Um, so anyway, uh, Cheska says something about a soul bound who can write contracts that will sort of bind her. And again, Calder has this moment of them looking around and realizing that all of them have started to talk about like meeting in this, you know, summit as a foregone conclusion that they're definitely going to do it. And Calder, this kills me to know this now. Calder had said to them, I don't know if I'm a good choice because of this. And he's got that handprint from Kellerak on his arm. The guild heads looked to him, then one by one dismissed him. Oh, really? Did they? <laughs> Just knowing how much it falls apart utterly because of that mark and the fact that none of them take this seriously at all. This is really something. Like... A lot of the time when you've got somebody who's coming into power and they aren't necessarily practiced with it and they're surrounded by a council of people who are more experienced maybe because, you know, especially like Teach has been in her position for a while. Um, you expect for them to be the voices of like more reason and in the moment here, it seems like they are, because if you had read this book first, you wouldn't know how completely, completely off the mark they are. But looking at it now and realizing that they all really believe it's just sort of a silly thing to get hung up on. All navigators like have dealings with elders um, Bliss, Bliss says, I have one of Tharlos's bones in my pocket. You have an elder chained to the bottom of your ship. And Kern says, if the regents can read shady backgrounds, I'd say we're all in trouble. They just truly hand wave this in a way that's like in irresponsible. And I guess that they don't really understand how... Esther Six is going to take it. Maybe they don't understand the depths of her suspicions. But man, it's really wild to see this moment in real time and know 
how little they really thought this was going to be a problem. And then it winds up being like the problem. Um, so <laughs> I love this moment. He looks outside and sees the uh, guy who's getting coronated on the prop throne. The people gathered below would see Imperial steward Calder Martin sitting silently in the background as the guilds spoke for him. And so Calder thought, Art imitates reality. So then we go to the scene where he has Jerry brought to him. And I was wondering what his reason was for this. And then it turns out he kind of doesn't have one. He just wants to talk to her. I mean, it's his fucking wife, you know, and he's trying to understand what her deal is. And clearly, I think what he wants, if he were being truthful with himself he wants her to admit that either she's being controlled entirely by a great elder and was not in control of any of her actions or that she has seen the error of her ways none of this is what she wanted and she wishes she could undo it and she understands now like he wants something that is going to indicate she isn't the person she looks like she is. And unfortunately, he's not going to get that. There is nothing that Jer Jerry is more so than committed to the shit she's been committed to from the beginning. She, despite him not knowing about it, has been really consistent. And looking back at like the early book and how sort of foolhardy she was at times, obviously that was a major reason he was drawn to her is the fact that she was an adventurer and she really loved to take risks and do things that were sort of off the wall. But he didn't ever really stop to consider what that might mean in a greater sense. It just felt like maybe in sort of a small petty way, but, when it comes to the great elders, she doesn't see what she's doing as any different, really, than taking some risks that, in her mind, are guaranteed to sort of pay off. So they have this moment where it almost feels okay between the two of them. First, the guards won't leave him alone, and he has to sort of get up and yell at them for the fact that they have undermined his authority in front of a prisoner and, like, get out or I will remove you myself. And he thinks that she's going to mock him for the fact that they don't respect him and they're not obeying him. But she puts a hand on his knee, both hands, because they're like manacled together, and asks, are you all right? He almost broke down at the simple question. If she had still been only his wife, he would have. And that really got me a little bit. Just the idea of like a person that you are so used to being able to be honest with, so you thought, and be vulnerable with, and just the sound of their voice and the way they're touching you tricks you into thinking you can again and realizing all of a sudden that it's not true. That's a familiar feeling and that's awful. So he asks her, how did we get here, essentially? And she says, I handled myself badly. I couldn't have done worse. I shouldn't have lied to you for so long. 
I could have started with pieces of the truth years ago, worked my way up, but I convinced myself that things were fine as they were. Everything would work out, especially after the great one. And so what she's thinking is like the prophecy that they got from the great elder, that this was going to mean that he would like understand and believe somehow inherently. And he asks her to tell him more. Um, she says the sleep, what the sleepless do is exactly what the black watch does, what the navigators do. My father was a watchman himself and he didn't lose his sanity. He realized that we shouldn't just be studying elders. We should be learning from them. And he starts to be like, you've said all this before. And she's like, yeah, and you haven't fucking listened. They do share truths with us. How do you imagine I got away from the Grey Island when the Handmaiden attacked? I called messengers and they carried me through the void to the capital. It's a two-day journey and I made it in minutes. They teach us summoning rituals for elder spawn. Do you know what that means? It's the same as summoning a dog. You need the creature's name, some bait like food or a toy, and you use the right tone. That's it. How do you think you ended up with shuffles? That sounded so logical that it disturbed him. He had an elder chained to his ship. He bartered with Kellerak for the sword he wore. Akmagut had predicted him standing in this place wearing a crown. And then he remembers her saying that he should use the Aptasia. And he asks about that. And she says that may have been a mistake. And goes on to say when he told me you were supposed to use the throne it made sense to me and when he pushes it basically it's Kellerak. uh he also said our real enemy is shara i believe him but not just him the sleepless have certain predictions from akmagut even a few notes from other sources they call her the killer she's supposed to be dead and he sort of this is an interesting moment he stood straightening his sheathed sword as he focused on it he felt the intent of his armor pressing in on him trying to overwhelm him with its strength it surprised him with its strength he hadn't made a conscious attempt to read the armor it was as though the emperor's intent was trying to push its way into him anyway he managed to force it away, but the brief mental struggle helped distract him from his confusion. And I was really wondering, because it says, like, it's trying to press in on him, but it doesn't say what that intent actually is. And I'm really curious what that was supposed to be right there. Um, so... This sort of ends here. They get interrupted for a moment to like remind him he has other meetings and he pats her on the shoulder and says that he'll call for her again. When she was being escorted out of the room, she glanced back over her shoulder and he saw a faint, desperate hope in her eyes. He was glad to see it. And I felt so awful with this. He was glad to see a hope that he's going to change his mind. Like he just doesn't want her to hurt, I guess. And even if it's sort of 
him lobbying against himself. He's hoping he'll be able to keep that from happening to her. But man, Calder, I just, I really feel for him because the amount of lying that she has done and the position that she is putting him in, there's no options for him, you know? And her saying like, Kellerak told me that you should use it and I thought that was the right thing to do. It doesn't seem to have occurred to her that any of the other stuff she did was her misinterpreting or falling for the okie doke, like killing Lucan and trying to kill Maya. There is no apparent remorse on either of those fronts. She still seems pretty convinced that was how she was supposed to handle it. And that's something that I find kind of interesting that like, she seems really certain about so much. But then when it comes to him using the Aptasia, she freely admits maybe she was mistaken. And I'm just like, how can you acknowledge you maybe misinterpreted one thing and not bring everything else into question? Because that's just how I work. You know, the moment that I realize I've taken a bunch of stuff sort of at face value, I begin to trace my steps over and go, wait, what else did I take at face value? And I don't see her like, she can be so methodical and logical about some things. And then when it comes to this stuff, she just trusts so completely that they are telling her what she needs to know. It's just so frustrating. Anyway, okay. So we go to chapter two. And this is the chapter from Petal's perspective. And she is with our crew by now. Um, this is four years ago, this flashback. So she isn't on her own, but she is still sort of like gathering uh, knowledge still. So she's up in the rafters. Um and I love this. She was no natural climber. The most athletic thing she usually did was climbing up to the top of the stool nailed on the deck of her cabin on the Testament. Sometimes she lifted beakers. Today, she had brewed up an adhesive web that would allow her to climb as quickly as a spider when combined with specially treated gloves. I love this. She has turned herself into Spider-Man. She is Spider-Man. Um, so... She climbs up there and it turns out that there is going to be a presentation here, a class, and she has gotten in before it starts so that she can be in on whatever they wind up sharing. Um, so this dude comes in and she has a spyglass and she, he only knew she was doing alchemical research and had been happy to contribute so long as he got his spyglass back unaltered. Petal had been a little offended by that assumption, not that she had said so out loud. If she treated the spyglass, it would be to make it more effective. Some glass cleaner? Or maybe there were chimera with incredible eyesight. Surely there would be some kind of extract that would allow you to borrow their sight. Maybe if it could be awakened. She chewed on the thought for a few minutes as the professor prepared. And I really enjoy getting to see the way her mind works and how quickly she spins out into thinking about possibilities. She's just got a very active mind. Um, so she's looking at the students and it's just kind of like, oh, a lot of y'all are older than I thought you would be. And not all of them seem like actual 
full-time alchemist. There's somebody who's a baker. And I was like, actually, it's not like not an alchemist. I'm just saying. Um, this wasn't an official class of Canitalia's Grand Alchemical Academy. It was a collection of amateur alchemists coming to learn from a guild professional. Technically, Petal only counted as a journeyman alchemist by Canitalia standards. Her master had removed her from consideration instead of sponsoring her, but by that time the damage had already been done. She was in love with alchemy. And basically, she's gotten a lot of her knowledge this way. She sneals, steals things, she sneaks in places, she eavesdrops. Uh, it says she drills a hole in a neighboring wall or bribes one of the attendees for transcripts. But today she managed to like get in. And the demonstration he's doing is a elixir that will give you the abilities of a champion, which, as we know, is what Shara winds up taking later. And she has the same reaction that Shara does. She gets really excited thinking about all the possibilities before it's made very clear it's a temporary thing and then realizes like, oh, OK, he's sort of exaggerating things. Um, and the way they're doing this is by using some blood from a champion. And there's a little bit of info about how that's not something that champions are really cool with. And the alchemists have been known to grave rob in the past, but they like every single time they have always gotten caught. So uh, he has this grandmotherly baker quaff a small vial and she does backflips. She is fucking psyched. This lady is at the top of her, past the top of her game, you know, beyond anything she would have been able to do probably even in the peak of her physical life. And Petal is watching all of this and she is like, man, if he was able to do this with champion blood, like we have a fucking champion on board. We could do this. He's got a ton of blood. Let's figure it out. Um, and eventually after coming up with all these ideas, writing in her notebook, she looks up and she realizes that everybody is gone and she is somehow down on the ground level and hasn't, does, has no memory of actually climbing down. And, uh, again, kind of a thing with somebody who's got really intense ADD you will be doing some shit on autopilot and then you look up and it's done and you're like, Oh, I guess I did it. And I have had that happen with driving. I know this is a really common one. You will suddenly be pulling into your driveway and you do not remember any of the drive home. And it's a really freaky feeling because it makes you kind of think if I'm so unconscious as to drive without noticing how did I not fucking die? Like, you know, but it's a combination of muscle memory and daydreaming, sometimes being overtired. Um, but anyway, she has been thinking so hard again that she winds up getting totally lost. And the, by the time she's up, like looking around, realizing that she doesn't know where she is, she hears a voice that she recognizes and it's Jirene talking to a couple of dudes and 
petal, it gets really anxious on her behalf. And uh, it says he looked gyrene up and down with an openly hungry expression. Petal is feeling like these dudes are up to no good. Jirene doesn't like understand the danger. And uh, Jirene says, you'll have to lead the way. Unlike you boys, I have someone waiting for me at home. Jirene's earrings gleamed emerald in the starlight as she nodded deeper into the alley, which now that Petal noticed opened up onto something that looked like a cave. How did that happen? Had someone hollowed out the stone wall of a building? No, the stone shouldn't be more than a foot thick, not nearly enough for a cave. And she keeps looking, and then when she looks again, the cave is gone. Jirene is gone. And Petal, bless her brave little heart, she has such horrible anxiety. And she still steps out and tries to say for them to let go of her. And... Again, Jirene is already gone, but the dude who's drunk looks at her very, very much not friendly and is asking her, what are you looking for? Are you spying on us? And she pulls out her goggles and puts them against her eyes. And she says, I'm an alchemist. And he says, get out and don't ask questions. And I'm thinking to myself, it's interesting that she's putting her uh, goggles on, sir. I feel like that really should be something that you're noticing. But he does not notice that she is protecting herself. And she sets a smoke bomb off and then later uses this like irritant that basically causes him to pass out and like he he it, she uses too much and the dude goes down so much harder than he really should and he has a partner that tries to jump on her and she just does the same thing to him nobody's really noticing any of this and she's standing there thinking i need to look for jirene but she's flipping out inside and has to sort of like breathe and then all of a sudden she hears jirene who recognizes her and is like, what are you doing here? And we have this beautiful moment. I love this so much. Petal asks, I saw a cave. Jirene's brow furrowed as though she had no idea what Petal was talking about. And Petal could see the lie forming on her lips. Petal would pretend to believe it. And then as soon as she was back on the ship, she would tell Captain Calder. Well, maybe she would. There was the possibility that Calder wouldn't listen to anyone saying anything about his girlfriend or would believe Jirene no matter what Petal said. Better to tell Andal. He would know what to do. And I was just like, girl, you have got some good instincts. That is the exact correct way to handle this. Because Andal is the one really that should be like overseeing the operation, especially considering that he's got his fucking suspicions of Jirene already. And Petal is not wrong. We know Calder doesn't want to fucking hear it. He is not interested. So she would have been right to handle it this way. But Jirene can sort of see that Petal isn't going to buy the lie. And she just tells her the truth. And I think this is so fascinating. The moment of like when Jirene realizes a lie, a lie isn't going to work. 
how? How does she know? But she can. She can just tell. And that is so dangerous. Somebody who can read people that well, you know? So she finally says, it's elders. And we are trying to understand more about them. And I know that you also, with your alchemy, you tried to find knowledge as well. And people will consider it strange or dangerous. But there's nothing wrong with trying to understand more of the world. The more we know, the better. And Petal, this is speaking exactly to her. It says, Petal had hated it when she was denied official access to the alchemical knowledge she craved. She had immediately resorted to her own methods of learning, from stealing textbooks to sneaking up to the rafters to spy on lectures. Who was she to stand in the way of Jirene's ambition? I promise, Petal said softly. And... I just really like, she just gets played so perfectly here. And I really understand her. I love that throughout all of this, the dudes who jumped her are still like fucked up. And their compatriots who had been in the cave with Jirene and come back out are like desperately trying to resuscitate them. And it is not looking good for them. <laughs> Petal is not somebody to fuck with. Like she may not look like much, but the bitch is prepared. She knows her own limitations and has accounted for them. And I love that about her. So, all right, that is the end of that chapter. So I'm going to have to wrap, but <sighs> I'm glad to get to know more about Petal, but I just really don't like knowing she was aware of all this. And I really can't help but wonder what she must be feeling once Jirene really goes over to the dark side. Like, and again, I say dark side, the elders are so fucking mysterious in so many ways i'm still not like entirely convinced i uh, i think i don't know yeah no dark side that's fine i'm just gonna say it um all right i'm gonna wrap up but thank you guys again so much for listening thank you asher for commissioning this appreciate you a lot and until next time toodaloo motherfuckers
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.